to be. Or not to be. That, that is, is the, the question. question. Why these words? Why am I, why are we saying this? Why did Shakespeare pen this? I do think that the drama has the capacity to make space for us to think about the things that we need to think about. What is the point of you being here? Why are you in this room? Why do you want to talk about Shakespeare? And you can see them kind of going, uh, I'm actually supposed to answer this question? It's the magic of art that, you know, Nietzsche got it right. Art transfigures suffering into something we can live with. Welcome to To Be or Not To Be, a podcast series about Hamlet's famous soliloquy. In this episode, we're going to look at some fundamental questions. What does to be or not to be mean? Is there an answer? Is it possible to think about Hamlet's speech and find ways of relating it to how we live our own lives here and now in the real world? To be or not to be is probably the most famous speech in all drama. In a way, that seems to be a very curious thing because it's a really, really weird and really, really hard speech. I think if anybody looks at this speech and thinks, God, I, you know, I've got no idea what that's about. I think they're much closer to its meaning than any of us who might think, oh, no, well, I know that. I've heard it a million times. We're starting with Professor Ewan Fernie. He's the author of a brilliant book called Shakespeare for Freedom, Why the Plays Matter. In thinking about Hamlet's speech, he's struck by an apparent paradox. Why has it become so famous when it seems so utterly miserable so completely despairing. What the speech does, and this is why it's so hard, he characterises being, he characterises life in entirely negative terms. The whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely. Literally everything is negative. So life for him is seen in utterly negative terms. And then the thing that puts him off death and not being is the fact that there might be an afterlife. So he rejects life and he rejects the afterlife and that produces a kind of totally hollowed out choice to carry on it's a really really powerfully negative speech and the fact that that's our speech that is our speech that's our epitome of western drama and personality it really says something quite moving and upsetting i think about about human life and human culture ewan says hamlet is the total opposite of a revenging hero in fact he makes no effort at all to carry out the duties responsibilities and expectations which the world thrust upon him. Instead, he seems to reject life and all it entails. I mean, he doesn't do anything that we normally do, which would secure, which we think we might think secures our own identity. So, you know, you do your job well, you, um, you know, you uphold the, the 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 family honor, as it were, and you know, maybe you get married and have kids, or, or you know, you find your place in the social order through. Um, sexual relationships or through a partnership or whatever and and Hamlet actually doesn't do any of that I think it's one of the the interesting things about him Hamlet is the prince who does not become king is the man who does not become a husband who when he says I say we shall have no more marriages there's a kind of withdrawal from sexual relationship altogether I mean the the the, the critic G Wilson Knight saw Hamlet as an ambassador of death it's a very arresting phrase in, so in a sense he does turn towards death but then what interests me is then the whole of human culture falls for it and we all swoon over him as if that's what human life is that's what human culture is Fortunately, there are many reasons why we don't need to see Hamlet merely as a suicidally depressed dead loss, 
Nor do we need to see Shakespeare as a miserablest, nihilistic writer. The great German philosopher Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel had a resonant phrase when he wrote about Shakespeare. He said that, in the richness of their language, in what he called their spirit and their imagination, in their ability to stand aside and to examine themselves, even when they're at their most tortured, Shakespeare's characters are free artists of their own selves. Ewan has spent years thinking about what this might mean. What I was interested in in the, in the passage you, you, you quote is that it might be that in moving away from being who you apparently are is also to turn towards freedom, is to unplug from your usual, from your social substance, from the things that apparently define you in the world and say, actually, what really makes me me is none of those things, but is, but is my freedom to create myself otherwise. It's that sense that everything is alive and you know, he eats the air promise crammed and he's funny and he's fast and he's quick and he says the things that he's not supposed to say. And that causes him terrible problems, <laughs> but, it, but it's also a way of existing fully. And, and I think on the one hand, it's destructive. It, 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 it destroys the life that is the substance of that life. But on the other hand, it's kind of shot through with the promise that we could always be otherwise. He's a monumental failure in the terms of the world. And yet that, that very failure has somehow seemed rich with promise and possibility as if he represents a kind of freedom that, as I say, is also related to bereavement and loss and death and so forth. And Hegel, un, un, he understood that, I think. He understood that freedom was had its, had its cost. You know, human life is often a kind of laboratory for, for forms of freedom, of straining against those limits, of trying to understand new ways of, of, of being and to create new ways of thinking. Hamlet may be in despair as he delivers the speech, but that doesn't necessarily mean that as an audience we have to despair along with him. Professor Paul Cotman. A.C. Bradley, one of my favourite Shakespeare critics, says, I think quite beautifully, about Shakespearean tragedy in general, but Hamlet in particular, that we sense at the end that his life was a waste. But by that, I think he means if there was a waste, there was something that something to be lost, something of value there. So Bradley says, no one closes the book and thinks that human beings are miserable creatures. Um, which seems to me about right, engaging, uh, engaging whether or not Hamlet's a nihilist or whether Hamlet the play is a nihilistic play. I just think all of Shakespearean tragedy is an attempt to come to grips with, um, with what it would be to lose what we might call givens, the facts of nature or, or, or divine truths or rock solid cultural values that might be orienting for a life or explain the structure of a human society or relationships or what we hold dear. And all of these things seem to me to be taken from the protagonists of Shakespearean tragedies, really ripped out of their lives. Um, so the death of Hamlet's father and Hamlet does this and then they have to work from there. So you could say that Shakespearean tragedy tries to work through the loss of those givens, those rock solid um, transcendental values on which we base our lives. It's, all of those things turn out to be dissolvable, but they turn out to be dissolvable in ways that open new possibilities for living. It seems to me that the characters in Shakespearean tragedy don't just say, oh, all is lost and then jump off a cliff. Um, instead, they're left with the idea that somehow their own actions have to be self-explaining, self-interpreting, self-legitimating. 
um, and that they might try out um, new ways of life. And I think that Hamlet is fascinating because he's a character, um, like so many characters in Shakespeare, who changes over the course of the play, even though things don't necessarily get better for him. In some ways, they get much worse for him. Um, but he starts to look for a way to live with uncertainty about who he is, um, what he might profitably do with his life. He, he starts to, to find ways or cultivate ways of, of living with some uncertainty about who he is or who he might become. So does Hamlet find some kind of answer as he moves through the play? Professor Joshua Landy. In the to be or not to be speech, what's the problem that he's, what's the thing that's making him consider suicide? Well, it's that the world is unfair. The world isn't ruled by divine providence. It's full of what he calls outrageous fortune. He can't just think of himself as an agent of providence because providence seems to have you know, fled the scene. So if he's going to find a motivation, it has to come from within. Joshua has a theory that Hamlet does find a kind of answer. He thinks the secret lies in the way he engages with the travelling actors who visit Elsinore. Hamlet seems to temporarily throw off his despair, entering into enthusiastic collaboration with the actors. He gives them lessons in speaking. He writes a speech for them, and he organises a performance which he believes will expose the murder of his father before the whole court. He also becomes fascinated with the actors' techniques. The way that, during a play, they can become completely immersed in their parts. When Hamlet's looking at the player King, He's trying to figure out how to borrow the techniques of acting for his life. Hamlet is seeing an actor genuinely feel an emotion. He's trying to figure out how that's possible. And most importantly, he's trying to apply it to his own life. When Hamlet stages the play within the play, he's rehearsing for something he's going to do in his life. He's trying to use the theater as a kind of practice space for living his own life. So my thought is, he's learning from these actors to be more fully who he is. It's very important to distinguish this from acting as fakery. It's not that he learns to fake something. It's not that he learns to pretend to care about his father's murder. It's not that he learns to pretend to be an Avenger. He genuinely cares about his father's murder and he genuinely wants to take revenge on Claudius. What he's learning is how to feel that completely with all of himself. And that's what an actor is able to do. They're able to focus on one thing and make that fully the center of their attention and their being, at least for the space of that scene or that play. So I think, yes, in a way he does, I think he does find a kind of answer to that question. It's not an answer to everything. For example, it doesn't keep him alive very long, right? So it's not a panacea. But it allows him to be more authentic. It's a transformation from someone who hasn't learned yet how to be the actor of his own life to someone who has. Joshua says he's found ways of relating these kind of considerations to his own life. I, I think about this a lot, and it's something that I actually try to import into my own life. I feel as though I've learned a little bit from Shakespeare how to be a better actor of my own life, which again is not to say a fake. It's just more commitment 
uh, more authenticity, more being in the moment and being the self that I need to be right now, the genuine part of me, but giving it my full commitment. I think that's the one thing that's really been the most transformative for me. As long as you're also making sure to be a good upstanding person and do all the other things that you know we need to do. But as long as that's taken care of, well, why not try to import some of this um, actually understanding of the world into one's life? Dr. Christy Carson uses Hamlet's great speech to explore issues in the lives of the students she teaches. She says many of them can connect to its themes of a search for meaningful identity. I think that's what's so interesting about the play is that a lot of the students feel that they're not in the right place. They're not the right person for the role they've found themselves in, whether that's in their family or, you know, in society. Um, and the play really deals with that. He's a person who is not properly placed to be the king. I mean, I actually use it to turn on to the students in, in the classroom because I make, you know, I make it metatheatrical in the way that I actually stop them and say, well, I'm asking you the question, what is the point of you being here? Why are you in this room? Why do you want to talk about Shakespeare? You know, aren't there other things you could do with this, you know, hour of your time that would be better, better used? And you can see them kind of going, uh, I'm actually supposed to answer this question? And so I think that's exactly what Hamlet does. He steps out of the play completely. What is the point? You know, what is the point of what we're doing right now? Is thinking um, a good thing or a bad thing? And so, again, I think that's one of the things that the students found re find fascinating about it is because these are all things they've, they've asked themselves, and we've all asked ourselves. The other thing the play is all about is grief. Shakespeare was writing it uh, after uh, losing his own son, and so the profound sense of wanting to go back, wanting to retreat to a place where, you know, and to say this is not fair, this is, this is unkind, I, I don't know how to deal with this, is something that I think once you've started to lose people who are close to you, you, you understand a lot better. When you're grieving, you tend to go do practical things for a while, and then suddenly something will just trigger you, and you'll go, just stop and go, what's the point? What's the point in any of it? That's why the to be or not to be speech is such a, a, a striking moment. And so I think, yeah, there's something very profoundly um, affecting about that when you see somebody going through that process on stage. And again, you know, in the moment that we're in at the moment, in a plague, um, there are, are many, many, many people who are grieving at the moment. And I think this play will have a resurgence once, once we're all unlocked down. Ewan Fernie sees in the To Be or Not To Be speech an invitation, a search for a new and more fulfilling way of being in the world. He seems to mean... How, how can I act in a way that has integrity? And he's saying, look, I don't really want life on any terms. If, I want, if I'm going to live, I want it to be worth something. So I, I see Shakespeare as, as looking for freedom and, and, and looking for individuality, but, but, but nevertheless, without suggesting that, that we don't have responsibilities, without, and suggesting what, what, how, how might you make a big difference within responsibility you know how, how can how can I live as a, as a, a middle-aged man with a reasonably respectable <laughs> career or whatever um, you know I've got a mortgage and <laughs> so, so forth so um, and, and and yet live otherwise I mean live that life live within those limits and 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 yet find 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 my life recent theory and philosophy has tended to suggest that much is much of our lives is, are, are culturally conditioned you know and we don't have the freedom to 
to, to produce ourselves absolutely sui generis. So much of our lives are scripted, and yet Shakespeare does both things. I mean, I think he shows us how life is is mediated through all sorts of um, shared categories, and you know, through through historical and dramatic situations that you know exceed our our volition. Even if our lives are scripted, if so much of what we we are um, and will be is all, is given and decided in advance, even in those circumstances, we can. Um, we can make a difference. That we can, um, we can find ourselves. And as I say, I, you know, Shakespeare knew that as an actor because he knew that you had to make a scripted part your own. Um, so I, I, I see it as a, um, a realistic and, and truthful experiment in making things new, in in establishing freedom, in in living a life that is largely given and, and decided in advance and nevertheless making it your own and that's a personal thing but it's also a political thing it shows you know we can do that collectively as well there are many caveats to the idea of exploring one's own existential freedom if hamlet does embrace freedom and potentiality he also destroys himself in the process and he destroys others too and this is a very male dominated play a character like ophelia who goes on a very similar journey to Hamlet, gets a fraction of his stage time, and she's never given her own version of a to-be-or-not-to-be speech. Professor Emma Smith is troubled by these issues. It is not my favourite speech, and in certain ways, you know, Hamlet is not my favourite play. I feel slightly alienated from it. I don't think Hamlet is a fabulous play for women. There are sometimes ways in which I look at Hamlet and think you are an indulged young man. <laughs> so the women are not allowed a kind of uh, a kind of solidarity. Uh, they're not really allowed a kind of alternative view of the world. Their opportunities, the opportunities of women to to uh, to have any kind of agency at all seem really really limited. I, I think what what is you know, resilient and creative about Shakespeare's plays as resources for us is that they can all, they've got space for us. They have got space to be turned inside out or to be reoccupied in different ways with, with different priorities. And there's something about Hamlet's own gender or the, his occupation of his masculinity, which is transgressive perhaps, or, you know, that for, for all, we could say this is a, this is a male dominated play. We could also say that Hamlet's Hamlet's sort of gender is 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 not conventionally masculine. Saying that I find Hamlet as a woman, I find Hamlet a difficult play, isn't at all to to sort of write it off or or, or strike it off the list. It's to it's to look forward to future ways people, the, the many people, men and women, who feel that about the play will will reimagine it. Uh, and it's been a role that has felt different and looked different when women when women have performed it. I think what's utterly distinctive about Shakespeare um, and doesn't really apply to to any other writer in the world uh, is the sense that this dead white male from 400 years ago really isn't dead. It probably isn't white and isn't male either. Um, And by that, I mean the efforts of performance um, keep keep these texts alive. I do think that the drama has this the capacity to to make space for us to think about the things that we need to think about. It's been really interesting in 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 lockdown. Um, think about how one of the cultural 
resources that's come to the fore has been Shakespeare. You know, the reading of a sonnet every day on Twitter or something. It's extraordinary that Shakespeare, you know, did Shakespeare write King Lear during the plague? Somehow Shakespeare can be one of our coordinates for thinking about new experiences. Um, and that's, I mean, that, that's an extraordinary privilege to be up close to that. Joshua Landy is an enthusiastic proponent of the value of drama. The theatre can be a formal model for us, a model for how we can live our lives and thinking, what's that about? What's happening here? It's the magic of art that, you know, Nietzsche got it right. Art transfigures suffering into something we can live with. There's a lovely line de Beauvoir said about literature. The miracle of literature is that another person's thought becomes mine. We get a meeting of minds across what, how many hundreds of years is it now? Is this was around what, 1601, I believe this play was performed. It's as though we're in the, he's in the room with us. I think there's a very, it's a fine line because of course, on one side of the line, well, one extreme, uh, poetry is just useless. And I think that's a bad way, place to be. And on the other side, it's a self-help book. And that's an embarrassing place to be. But in the middle, there are all these very respectable and sophisticated and interesting explanations of why art is actually valuable and it's, it's, it's a gift. Paul Kopman believes studying the humanities offers us a kind of sceptical, rational middle ground when dealing with everything that the world throws at us. It's a symptom of a crisis moment, like the one we're in, that the that the obvious resources we have to turn to to figure out how to orient our next steps don't seem readily available. And that we therefore are tempted sometimes to take what we might call a point of view of eternity, um, to really take a step back and say, well, how does this look from sort of a God's eye point of view? But I think the humanities offer a, a really great middle way, which is that we don't have to just have the newspaper to orient us, nor do we need religion and a kind of point of view of eternity to orient us. But we might take a step back, let's just say a few centuries, and say, well, you know, Hamlet's a play that both looks, Shakespeare is a, is a corpus, that both looks back to what we now call antiquity, but also really senses an incipient modernity that has since then become so familiar to us. And it's what makes Shakespeare so compelling to us still is how modern he is if we can figure out for ourselves why these words, right? why these words, um, why, am, why, am, why am I, why are we saying this? You know, why did Shakespeare pen this? And if we have an answer to that, um, whether, the, whether it's the right or wrong answer forever is not, is, not, is not really so much the issue, but let's say if we find an answer to that that we think is credible, that we can believe in, then, then we've answered something about what the plays mean and what they mean to us. Um, and therefore answered something about who we think we are. This podcast was started in the depths of the coronavirus lockdown. And the contributors all agreed to take part because they wanted to raise awareness for theatres and for actors at a time of crisis due to pandemic, to rolling lockdowns and social distancing. If you want to help, theatres like The Globe have donation pages you can visit, and special fundraisers have been set up during lockdown. If you visit the podcast website, you can find some links. Finally, special thanks go to Emma Fielding and Simon Paisley Day, who recorded versions of the speech at home during lockdown. 
and thanks too to Chris Dyer, Paul Sem and Hannah Fiore for their invaluable help and support. Soft Janelle, the fair Ophelia. Nymph in thy orisons, be all my sins remembered.